God's word is set within a real time and place. It is not just a book that is mystically written with spouting uh, religious ethics or virtues, but it is a historical document that beginning in Genesis and all the way to Revelation happened in real context before real people and real events. No less the book of Hebrews. People who had come out of the Hebrew faith and were deciding whether or not they wanted to follow Jesus, many had, and some were still deciding. And so the book of Hebrews is written to shore up their foundation and help them understand the connection between Christ and the sacrifices and the law of the Old Testament. We're going to begin reading actually in chapter 10, verse 32, and then read down to chapter 11, verse 2, and I'll explain why we're going back for a few moments Uh, as we get into the text. All right, beginning in verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which, is, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And these people of faith are described in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 38 as people of whom the world was not worthy. As we get into Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11 has oftentimes been regarded as the great hall of faith. Those men and women who have walked before and have faithfully followed the Lord in faith, even though maybe in their lifetime they did not see the fulfillment of God's promises. Sometimes when we look at Hebrews 11, though, we interpret it and teach it divorced from the previous 10 chapters that have come before, and in particular, the few verses that end chapter 10 and launch us into Hebrews 11. You see, Hebrews chapter 10 ends with that we are a people of faith, that we are to endure. And it would make sense, humanly speaking, to jump right to Hebrews chapter 12 into verse 2 where it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, you for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand, that we are to run likewise with endurance. It seems that we could go right from chapter 10 into chapter 12 and say, basically, now run the race. But the writer of Hebrews is conscious that these people are frail and even struggling. And that they need encouragement and illustration to see how other people lived out their life of faith. And so Hebrews 11 truly is a pastoral maneuver, if you will, to encourage and to give substance, to give pictures how real life, real people, in real circumstances exerted a life of faith even through great hardship. 
So we're going to review briefly this morning Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 39 to set up Hebrews chapter 11 and then begin into Hebrews chapter 11. Now, I'm not going to return to the theological theme of, with the question of, uh, of, can I lose my salvation? Or the question of eternal security. If you have questions about that, Please watch last Sunday. You can find it online. Please watch the Sunday before. We do address these texts in light of that big question of what do these texts say in light of salvation, eternal security, can I lose it? And if that's something you haven't heard, you missed last Sunday, please go back and listen to it because it's so foundational. So this is not returning to that theological theme, but rather we're going to launch into this text exhortationally to exhort you verse by verse so it leads us into Hebrews 11 and sets that up. Now Hebrews 11, major themes are, just like the end of chapter 10, themes of faith, themes of endurance, themes of keep going, it's worth it. And then Hebrews 11, of course, case studies for remembrance and help and encouragement. Now what is the connection with chapter 10? That there is hardship in life and it requires grit and endurance. That quitting the faith is indicative of our true heart status and there's the warning of chapter 10 and the encouragement, endure because it is worth it. Now if we look at chapter 10, verse 36, we'll find our big idea for the day. Hebrews 10, verse 36, here's our big idea for the day. You have need of endurance by faith. You have need of endurance by faith. Endurance is hard. Endurance means staying in the race when your lungs are bursting. It means keeping on when your lips are parched with thirst and your muscles ache with pain, it means keeping on when the finish line is nowhere in sight. All you see are the hills. All you see is the track before you, and the finish line is nowhere in sight. Endurance is one of those qualities that is largely forsaken in a culture that is a quickly disposable culture. If the way is not easy, if the way does not work quickly with near immediate effects, we discard it because we're looking for something that is that quick fix. But the Bible says we are called to endure and endure over the long haul. And endurance is hard. This past week, June 6, commemorates the June 6 D-Day landings in 1944, World War II. There is a movie that came out a couple of, I think it was a year or two ago. I rarely comment on movies, less still recommend them. But there's a movie called Greyhound starring Tom Hanks. It's a World War II movie that describes a sea captain in charge of a destroyer trying to get a convoy across the Atlantic to prep for D-Day. There are two profanities in the movie, but otherwise is an incredible depiction of endurance, And oddly enough, in Hollywood, a man of faith because the movie begins with this sea captain showing a card in his cabin and it says, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. 
Then he gets down on his knees and prays for the day. And for the next 55 hours, he leads his destroyer to protect them against a wolf pack of German U-boats and submarines. It is a fictional story, but based on true facts. And it shows him night after night, stepping up there hour after hour to the point his feet are bleeding from being on his feet too much. As he's commanding the men, as he's enduring, as he's pushing through the fight, and he's pushing through to get to the other side of what they call the dark hole of the Atlantic, the place where Allied air cover could not reach them. But if they can just push through to the other side, they know that they will reach safety. He endured and saved many a men that day. The Christian life is not too dissimilar in that there is an endurance race involved. And the key question that you may ask is, how do I hold on when the battle is hard? How do I hold on when the battle is hard? And it is this pastoral concern that drives the author of Hebrews at this juncture. If it was just simply to get a theological point across, he would have jumped from chapter 10 immediately to chapter 12. But chapter 11 and the end of chapter 10 is a pastoral heart concern for people who are struggling and tired and beat up by the world and beat up by their own sin. And it's his pastoral concern that you endure. It's also my pastoral heart for you that you walk by faith and finish well. You walk by faith. But what is faith? Oh, faith has been one of those dime a dozen words that's been railroaded into so many different contexts of our culture. What is faith? Faith is trusting in the sovereign one and his promises. Faith is trusting in the sovereign one and his promises. It is not a tool to manipulate the sovereign one to your desires. Faith is not a tool to be exerted in order to manipulate God according to what you think is a desired outcome. You know what that is? That's paganism. The ancient world paganism, even in modern religions today, we do these things in order to manipulate the favor of the deity in order to get a desired outcome. And many Christians treat faith that way. We try and wield it. We try and do more. If I only had faith, then God would do A, B, C, and D. And we wield it as a tool to manipulate the sovereign one. Faith is not a tool. Faith is an object. It is postured towards an object, specifically a trust in the God of the Bible. Specifically a trust in the God of the Bible. It is not an ambiguous hope or goodwill that is perpetuated by Disney and many others. Just have faith and it will happen. That's just a whole load of baloney. You can have faith in whatever you want, but if your faith isn't in the God of the Bible, it is powerless. Faith in its object. You see, the power of faith lies in its object, God, Jesus Christ, not the piety or the fervency of the individual. And this is critical even in salvation, to understand that salvation in faith, that living by faith, lies in the power of the object, God, 
not in the piety or the fervency of the individual. So let's go back to our key question there. So how do I hold on in faith when the battle is hard? Number one, number one, reset your expectations of normal Christian living. Reset your expectations of normal Christian living. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, we have these believers, and it says that they endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. They had compassion on those in prison, and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Verse 32 to verse 34. The result of them coming to Christ resulted in increased conflict with the world. Sometimes what we can view the Christian life or life in general is you have a choice to make. You can be at conflict with God or you can be at conflict with the world. There is no in-between. Conflict with God, I hope I'm stating the obvious here, is an unwinnable venture. So God in Christ sends his son to bring peace with God to those who believe in him. So now we have peace with God and that initiates conflict with the world that hates God. Or you can choose to have peace with the world and then continue eternally in conflict with God. Like I said, the conflict with God is an unwinnable venture. But the Bible says over and over again, guess what? Conflict with the world is going to end because God wins. So at this point, it's, it's the decision of, of which side are you going to choose? Which side are you going to plant your flag? When we initiate... When God draws us to himself and we walk into that relationship of faith by his goodness and by his love and his sovereign mercy, it moves us into a position where, guess what, life is a hard struggle. And it's important to have that expectation. It is so important to have this expectation because so much of the wide evangelical world says that, that, that conflict and difficulty and, and suffering and battle are, are not normative to the Christian life. And so then we walk through life wondering why we're facing this challenge and this difficulty and why wrestling with my unholy, sinful, lustful flesh is such a wearisome task. You see, the world says, especially greater evangelicalism, that normal Christian living should bring blessing and prosperity, but that is not what the Bible teaches. It does put you into a place of conflict with the world to where you might even be publicly exposed to reproach or affliction. And even if you are not afflicted publicly, we are partners with those so treated and we, we partner with those in Morocco or Iran or China or Afghanistan or around the world and we're partners with them Stepping in and helping uphold them even in the midst of their persecution. There is compassion for those who are in prison. There's, there's a, a, a zeal to want to minister to those brothers and sisters who are 
paying the price. So we're not divorced from their aches and pains, but we are walking in it with them. That we joyfully accept the plundering of our, of our property. And this feels so foreign, especially in the American mindset where we value property ownership as one of the pillars of our civilization. Now, don't misunderstand me. By God's grace, what a blessing property ownership and freedoms are, but can you love Christ enough to where your personal property and rights can be plundered joyfully? Have we forgotten that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The battle is real. And it would be a disservice for me to say anything less that following Christ is an endurance race. It is an endurance battle. So reset your expectations of what the normal Christian life is. Number one. Number two. Now cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you see here in verse 34, they joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since, okay, here's the connection, you see that word, since, we were able to do this since you knew that you had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew cognitively, they understood, they had, they, they had a truth that they were holding on to. It's just like Martha, when, when Jesus came and Lazarus had died and Jesus looked at Martha and he, he said to her, Martha, do you believe these things? She said, I know that the resurrection will happen. My brother will live again. There was, a, there was an anchor truth even in the midst of her grief. That we are to hold on to what we know to be true. And these Christians in Hebrews, they're enduring by setting their gaze on a better possession. Better than the here and now. <laughs> it's almost like they said, you know what, fine. Plunder my property. And I can let that go joyfully. You know why? Because I have a mansion being built by the hands of Christ beside the crystal sea at the throne of God in heaven. So if you take this, fine. You can never take that away. There was a setting of perspective, a setting of values. And it's an abiding treasure. It is eternal. It lasts. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, that great is your reward in heaven. And we get so discouraged often in the battle here because our sights are earthly instead of heavenly. So you got to reset that perspective. It's a battle here. I'm at peace with God, praise God. But by entering into peace with God, I've entered into war with the world for a very, very short time in light of eternity. I mean, it is very short. 
If you are lucky to live into your late 90s, praise God, that is a drop in the bucket compared to the millennia upon millennia upon millennia of being in the glories of heaven before the Father. Just a simple resetting the perspective. So number one, reset your perspective or your expectations of normal Christian living. Number two, cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why verse chapters 1 through 10 so far has been focused almost exclusively on the person and work of Christ. Number three, practice a peculiar patience. Practice a peculiar patience. And it's peculiar because it is strange to the world and even the greater evangelical community that you would build the ship of your faith where there has been no rain, no signs of rain, waiting for a storm that the Lord is going to bring. And when he brings the storm, your faith in that ship will be buoyed upon the waters of judgment and saved into life. What am I referring to? Noah, right? They mocked Noah for years. Noah, why are you building a ship? What are you looking for? It's never going to happen. He was a peculiar man in the eyes of the world. But we are called to practice likewise a peculiar faith. To not throw it away like Esau did. Don't throw away your confidence which has great reward. Esau, in order to please his hunger, in one moment threw away his birthright. Threw away his blessings because he wanted something now. And by throwing away his blessings, he was never able to recover them. Be careful. Warning to those who are playing that religious game that you would throw it away. To the true believers, the commendation is to endure, to keep going. It's great reward. You have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You've done the will of God. You've lived obediently. You've lived with a peculiar patience. You've received what is promised. Verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Yet a little while. This passage, verse 37, is quoted from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 3. And it's saying that there is a time gap between the promise made, salvation, and the promise consummated, when we see the fruits of that salvation come completely into existence. And in that time gap, there has to be patience. Habakkuk is one of my favorite Old Testament books because we have Habakkuk written probably around 640 to 615 BC, so about six centuries before the time of Christ, just before the fall of Assyria, before the rise of Babylon in the south. And God used Assyria to punish Israel. And now he's going to use Babylon to punish Assyria and Judah. And Habakkuk here as a faithful Israelite is saying, God, wait a minute. How are you doing this? Why are you doing this? How can you use evil men to accomplish your purposes? This just does not make sense. Two and two do not equal four in my mind. In Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3 it says this. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. 
It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk, I know you have questions. You, you have questions about how this is all going to work out for good. You have questions that, humanly speaking, we don't have answers to. Questions about grief and trauma and the justice of God. And though God in his mercy gives us, at times, glimmers of understanding, by and large, a life of faith is just that. It is believing and trusting like Habakkuk did where I believe at some point he went, God, I still don't understand because Habakkuk ends without a reconciliation in his mind of how all these things work together. He just basically said, God, you're God, I am not. It hurts, it's hard, it doesn't make sense, but I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna practice a peculiar patience that believes that one day the answers will be given. It's interesting here in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, it says, it will surely come. He uses uh, an ambiguous, a non-personal statement. It will surely come, speaking of the promise of God. But in verse 37, the writer of Hebrews, while quoting from Hebrews, gives a little bit of... Um, textual fulfillment by changing a word. He's quoting from the Septuagint, but he, he's doing this to point to something. In Habakkuk, it says, it will surely come. In verse 37 of Hebrews chapter 10, it says, the coming one. It is moved into a specific person. It's a very subtle change that is very easy to miss with profound implications. You see, Habakkuk was looking forward to a promise that was coming. The writer of Hebrews says, you know what Habakkuk was looking to? He wasn't just looking to an ambiguous promise. He was looking to a specific person, a coming one. A Hebrew idiom that John the Baptist even used. The one who is coming, the Lamb of God, the coming one. Get a little while and the coming one, this, this promise, this faith is built and fulfilled not just around some ambiguous statement but around a person, around Jesus Christ. So hold on. Jesus Christ is going to make it right all one day. And in the meantime, as Hebrews 10 has already stated, as a people draw near, Hold fast. And don't forsake the getting together of one another. Get together and stir one another up even more as you see the last day coming. Make it a priority to be with God's people so that you can stir someone else up. Oh, this is such a reversal. Get together because I'm struggling, because I need it, and I come to church expecting to be ministered to. The expectation of Scripture is the reverse. You gather to give. We gather to give out. 
We gather to stir one another up. If you are sitting here Sunday after Sunday and all you're doing is taking, you are not in step with what it means to be the church because the church gathers to give out. And guess what? If everybody's giving out, nobody has to ask or take because they're receiving. Stir one another up, reminding ourselves of perspective and what the Lord is doing. Practice a peculiar patience, not by yourself, but together. That's what the church does to the world. This is peculiar that we would get together and read from an old book about a truth that we believe is going to come to pass. It is peculiar that we pass around some bread and some cellophane-wrapped juice and then partake of it together. It is peculiar that we dunk people in a tank of water. It's peculiar. But everything we do here is as a people of God practicing a peculiar patience, believing that what God has promised, he is going to bring to fulfillment. We're remembering the death of Christ in baptism and that resurrection from the dead is also looking forward to that day when he will fully resurrect these dying and dead bodies and glorify us with the Son in heaven. It's peculiar. But that's what faith is to the world. It's peculiar. But practice it. Practice a peculiar patience together. Draw near, hold fast, stir one another up. And number four, walk by faith because the righteous shall live by faith. This statement here is found also in Romans chapter one, also in Galatians chapter three, that the righteous one will live by faith. The one who's been justified, been made righteous, their life is characterized by faith. Disbelief curries displeasure. But faith gladdens the heart of God. And we are those who have faith and preserve our souls, chapter 38 says. Chapter 39. What is faith, though? And what does it look like? Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's being sure about what has been promised. It is believing God's word. It's a conviction of things not seen. Even though we cannot see them or detect them with our physical senses, we believe that they are real. And it is by this faith that the people of old received their commendation, their approval, if you will, from God. And we are called to be a people preeminently, a people of faith. And this is not a statement of baseless mysticism or to the world a, a blind and ignorant hope. Rather, it's a specific belief in the Bible that it is true. And again, that will seem strange to the world. We are a people who take serious God revealed in the sciences, in astronomy and engineering and chemistry, that we believe that God has revealed himself in the world. That he's revealed himself in the arts and music and artisanship and creativity and rhetoric. That God has revealed himself in history and in the physical history and the geopolitical history and the history of thought and philosophy. We believe that God has made himself known and that these are not separate issues but all together by faith we believe that God is the author of it all. God wrote the law of thermodynamics. God is a 
poet. God is the great rhetorician and the great mathematician. He is the God who is weaving all things together for his glory and our good. And we believe. No, we don't understand it all. Even though some questions that are unanswered in life, questions of cancer, questions of sickness, questions of injustice, questions of suffering, existential mysteries, not always fully understanding how creation unfolded. We believe, as the Bible says, literal six days. But there are some mysteries in how the universe operates. We have not even come close to scratching the surface. God is not silent on any of these issues, but, but, in the end, in the end, it comes down to a simple question. Will you trust him? Will you believe him? Will you trust him beyond the finite limits of your meager faculties? And will you trust him and his heart when you don't have all the answers? How do we endure by faith? By casting our eyes on a great big God and keeping it there. And then gathering together and together keeping our eyes one another on where it belongs. Now you say, I got a lot of questions. Still a lot of challenges and how do I walk this out? Well, praise God, I'm glad you asked because now we're going to start walking through some real people who were full of frailties, full of flaws, and yet still believed a great big God. And God was honored and glorified. And one day, you're going to get to meet him in heaven. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this journey looking at those who have walked before, help us to trust you, even when it doesn't make sense, even when life is hard. We do not minimize the heartache or the pain, but I pray that like Habakkuk, we'd be able to reach out and say, Help me be patient to know that you own the cattle on a thousand hills and that you are in control. Help us to endure and encourage one another to endure, to not forsake the gathering of people together, to stir one another up to love and good works. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.